What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain All right, here we are with a very special edition <laughs> Warrior Poet Podcast. I believe this is number 12, lucky number 12, coming just a few days after 12-12-12. This is the fourth 12, though, so it changes the, the double beast to the quadruple beast, which means nothing at that point. So I think we fully neutralized it with this, the 12th Warrior Poet Podcast. So for any of you out there, if you've been having weird shit happening to you after 12-12-12, Know that in listening to Warrior Poet Podcast 12, you've added the fourth 12. And everything's going to be okay. Everything is good <laughs> at this point. So I'm here with my friend, a good friend, Donald Schultz, one of the craziest motherfuckers I've ever met. Um, so we'll get into, into some of his antics later, but, uh, but a pleasure to have you here, man. Glad to have you out here in Austin as well. Well, thank you so much. You know, so it's first time to Austin. I'm a huge fan of, of Texas and, and you know, just the states as a whole. So coming to Austin was a huge treat, and, and it's beautiful. I mean, the weather's kind of crappy now, but it's been beautiful the last couple of days. Yep, absolutely. Um, all right, if you want to get a little closer to the yeah, mic or bring that up a little bit go. more. Is that better? Yeah, yeah. now we're, now yeah. we're talking. <laughs> right on. So you came up here. You were planning on doing some uh, a little bit of base jumping. We're hopefully going to get that on on camera. Yep. But that seems to be kind of one of your main uh, main things that you're doing right now. So um, how'd you get into that? Um, you know, my big thing is is I'm scared of of only a select few things. Like and and growing up, I was scared of horses. I was scared of heights and spiders. And spiders always stayed with me. And I still hate spiders. But I work with the deadliest spiders in the world for venom research and that. So I, I, I actively seek out spiders. Um, horses, I ride all the time to try and get over that. And the heights, I was like, well, skydiving. And the very first time I skydived, I'm like, okay, I want to base jump. Because skydiving is just like a video game. Base jumping is, is real. You know, you're standing on top of a building. You're standing on a cliff or over a bridge. There's no one telling you yes or no. It's just, it's just you. It's very, right. very pure. pure, pure very pure. And the, the idea is like a lot of these messages that we have oftentimes are hard to get across. So you do something fun and exciting, get people in, and then convey the message to them, whatever that message may be. It seems that, you know, most people, when they have a fear, they don't go straight into it. And I understand that a lot. I actually had an experience like that as well. But most people just run from it, yeah. like totally. 
you know, my, my girlfriend is a perfect example of that. She's scared of spiders. And, you know, I keep telling, like, look, it's going to be good for your spirit and character and soul if you get over and conquer this fear, you know, especially because it's largely irrational. I mean, she's not afraid of black widows and brown recluses and, yeah. you know, face-eating, jumping tarantulas. She's afraid of, like, just Everything. little house spiders. And, and so I was like, you know, you got to get over that. You got to get over any kind of irrationality in your brain. But it's not the instinct. So how is it? Is it just... You know, your epigenetics, your DNA, your character. What made you want to go straight into your fears? I think, you know, one of the most freeing things that ever happened was my dad died when I was really young. And I didn't really understand what happened. He died of a heart attack when I was 17. And obviously losing your dad's a heavy thing. And then looking at his family, his dad died very young of a heart attack, his mom of a heart attack, his twin brother, his sister. And then when I hit 20, I was like, fuck, I'm going to die young. Uh, like I, if, if I don't change my behavior or if I don't do anything... I'm going to die young, so let's do the most dangerous shit possible well, to no, make, sure, say... make sure that I have the highest chances of that. <laughs> the, the thing for me was like growing up and being... Um, you know, growing up poor and not having a lot, lot of opportunity, I'm like, well, let's just you know, sort of make it until it falls apart. And that, that's kind of what we did at first. We'd go out and catch snakes with no you know, backups, no anti-venom, no real plan if we get hurt, just hoping for the best. And usually the best worked. Um, and as it went into other things, it was just like, don't assume tomorrow is going to be there because it, it's not. And you know, you're Indeed. living right now and, and do what you do and, and that's it. People who live these 80-year lives that are blasé and, and, and you know, vanilla, and it's, it's not, not for me. I'd rather have a short, eventful life than a long, uninteresting one. So, so that was it. My dad dying was me like saying, okay, well, you know, we're all going to die. Screw it. Let's just go balls out. And that you know, was true in diving. I'm a commercial diver. I dived mm-hmm. with the military and the police. Um, certainly with skydiving, base jumping, and then definitely with reptiles. I'd do things people, no, no one else wants to do because I was just like, well, fuck, if you die, you, you die. We all, it's all going to happen. I'd rather have a noble death than you know, one that's right, not, not so right, good. Yeah. Right. And there is a great feeling about going into your fear and conquering it. I remember there was a rash of shark attacks mm-hmm. in Florida. Like Maybe it was 10 years ago. And... Um, Summer of the Shark. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It's a bunch of them. Like, there's crazy stories. Like, the uncle jumps out and, like, grabs her daughter's arm out of the shark's mouth. And there's all kinds of stuff. So I'm in Florida, and I have a, a cut that's still kind of open and it's not really healing well. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go in the water. There's sharks, and I got a cut, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, fuck it. This sucks. I'm in Florida. I'm in fucking Key Biscayne. Yeah. I want to get in the water, and I want to swim. Like, that's what I'm here for. So I like picked a buoy, and it was like a cloudy day, murky. I know the sharks like the murky stuff. You're from <laughs> South Africa. We'll talk more about sharks, maybe. But I know the sharks like the murky stuff. So I was like, I'm swimming all the way out to that buoy and back with my bloody arm. Yeah. And I'm just going to get over this. And that way I can just play in the surf where it's relatively more safe. Yeah. And so I did it. I started swimming, and it was a weird, cool feeling to get out there. And obviously I didn't get eaten. But then when I got back, you know, I was like, all right, now I'm fine. Then I could just do my normal stuff and play around in the water. And I was over that fear. And I think that's important, you know, to kind of push through those fears and realize that, you know, I had a saying that I came up with then, either master your fears or let fear be your master. Exactly. And that and that's a huge part. And sharks were a fear of mine too, but I, I came, uh, you know, sort of overcame it early on when I was doing doing a lot of commercial diving. But that's a rational fear. Now that's like people like, okay, well, sharks can't eat people. What's irrational is the media and how they're represented. That 10 years ago, the summer of the shark was interesting because mm-hmm. sharks didn't spike. The, the shark attacks didn't spike. They only spiked in Florida. Media was having a low time. They didn't have anything to report on. So all of them were like, oh, sharks are coming straight for us. <laughs> Statistically, over the last 100 years, shark attacks have stayed the same, even though the population has quadrupled. 
So yeah. it's bullshit. There's sharks aren't attacking us. Like yeah. the 99% of the world sharks are gone. So it's like there's a huge drop in shark numbers, but the press gets hold of it. They're like coming straight for us. Right. I was a cameraman in Shark Week for two years and we'd take 2,000 pounds of chum, like salmon, not, not crappy chum, like actual Atlantic salmon where it's like fatty and like beautiful. Yeah. Throw that in the water to get the sharks to attack us. Other than that, they wouldn't do anything. And like what kind of sharks are you talking about here? Tiger sharks, lemon sharks, great whites. Like the only way to get great whites to come in is to, to lure them in. We'd shoot for 10 yeah. days. Attack your cage, right? No, no, attack us. I mean, we just... <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Wait, you're trying to get great whites to attack you. Oh, well, we were... Um, it was Survivor Man, Les Stroud. I was a cameraman on his Shark Week special um, a couple of years ago. And, and we were filming tiger sharks. And we wanted to get them in. And, and yeah, sharks are smart. They're just, you know, big sharks aren't stupid. They don't get big by being stupid. So when they look at you, they recognize you. They see you. And when you're underwater, they'll look. They'll be like, meh, not interested. Or they get interested and they come back. And the only way to get them in is either they have them attack you by surprise, which is impossible for filming, or you get them to come in with, with tons <laughs> and of... And generally a bad idea, I would <laughs> think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it depends on who's attacking. I mean, we got a guy attacked by a shark for Shark Week. We put chain mail on, a wetsuit over, put a piece of fish on the inside of his leg, and then filmed that with fake blood. And actually had a real person get attacked by a shark. And I filmed that. I was like, well, that's, that's pretty cool. What kind of shark? It was a reef shark, but it was still eight feet yeah. long. And it was big enough to shake him around. Now, I mean, wouldn't you think that even with the chain mail, the pressure of the jaws could do some damage once, I mean, you, once you get past about a certain size then yeah it would turn the, the flesh into spaghetti underneath the chain mail <laughs> and you know n- knowing these things helps when you when you getting someone attacked by a shark you know rather than figuring it out in the job but yeah i mean in shooting shark week the most misrepresented animals in the world they, they have no beef with people like you can be actively bleeding in the water they got no interest in you the people that do get attacked that's sad. You know, it, yeah. it is sad, but it's for the amount of human beings. It's, a, it's in a, the a more case of mistaken identity usually than, exactly. than people tell you. They think you're a seal. That's why surfers get attacked so much, right? And that's why, yeah, exactly. And, you know, even that happening, you know, Southern California from, from San Diego to LA, there's only been one deadly great wider shark, shark attack in the last whatever because they just leave people alone. And there is a nursery in Malibu. That's where great white sharks give birth. It's the only place in the world where we find baby great white sharks. They live there and no one gets that's attacked. That's terrifying. And it is terrifying, but but they there. That's that's the yeah. thing is they now they start, starting to take photographs of these white sharks breaching the surfers, and everyone's like, "Well, the sharks are coming straight for us." It's like, "Well, no, we actually going straight for the sharks." So the sharks have always been there, right? Yeah, man. That's I sharks. mean, <laughs> the I think the thought of that's so terrifying of sharks for most people. I guess for you, you might have a different perspective. You kind of you've been in their world enough that you feel almost like a kindred species to a certain degree you've dove and when you're diving if for anybody who hasn't you know been diving it's a lot different than snorkeling snorkeling is like walking on the outside of a fish tank you know you're very aware of your limitations in breath and having to stay on the surface sure you can you know scamper down to the bottom and then have to come right back up but scuba diving is a different animal Mm. you know you really feel like an aquatic creature for a you know, the most part, you're down there with the fish and it's a different level. And I guess doing as much diving as you, maybe you have a, even more of a, of a feeling of that. I feel like scuba diving when you're on the surface is the scariest part for sharks, even on shark week. Cause yeah. that's where you have the whole, I look like a dolphin. I look like a, a seal. Right. I look like a, something that a shark eats. <laughs> yeah. Right. So being on the surface sucks. Absolutely. Once you go underneath, it's a whole different world. And especially with sharks, when you know where they are, it's a lot cooler when you're sneaking up on the shark, not the other way around. 
Because sharks don't often see you. And sometimes if they do see you, they'll swim away. So yeah. if they don't see you, you can sneak up on them. And that's, that's fun. <laughs> you know, you give a shark a fright. And then one <laughs> of the things that we, we used um, on Shark Week was a rebreather. So that's what the military used and I dived with in South Africa. And, that, and it doesn't give off bubbles. So it's silent. So you can sneak up on other animals. Like usually with scuba, it's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah underwater yeah. with rebreather, it makes no noise. And so you can sneak up on fish. So when you're filming them, you can film straight up. You don't have bubbles. When you're filming next and they can't hear you. And that's where when we were diving in Fiji, you know, you'd swim up next to a shark and it'll turn around and actually gets a fright and swims away, which is, <laughs> you know, then, then they're not so scary. Then they right, seem cute, right, right. you know? <laughs> so, uh-huh. Cute so, sharks. So, yeah, and that's the thing. You know, phobias, find a phobia. I, I find something I'm scared of, you know, basically dissect it, try and understand as much about it. See, it's not that scary. And then the stuff that still is scary, then I just try and carry on going until I got no interest in it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a difference between actual fear that's irrational and the, the fear is useless you should try and conquer all ira- unrational fear at, at all times relentlessly you know without mercy conquer that fear but there's also danger and i think you cross into a lot of areas where it's not just conquering your fear you're actually placing yourself in a certain degree of danger like what did you do that that time where you put yourself in a box of deadly snakes <laughs> okay, let's well, talk about that <laughs> well you know as i said i try and use interesting content to you know elicit interest and then change. Um, I was filming a series for Animal Planet and we traveled around the world. We went and researched anti-venom in Sri Lanka. And while we were there, we noticed no anti-venom, um, you know, second highest amount of bites of people in the world. And then, you know, they, they just forgotten about it. So I thought what would be interesting is live in a box this big, literally the size of your office for okay. t- 10 days on the Vegas Strip. So for people that's like, what, 20 by 20? It was, yeah, I think it was exactly 20 by 20 with a shower and a toilet. Yeah. All with glass so people could see in. Um, so the shower and the toilet was frosted glass, but they could still see my silhouette. So I we went into poo. Why? Yeah. why? I mean, why, at that point, Donald, why not just give them a real show? You <laughs> well, know? You know, the, the, why I, frost the glass, buddy? <laughs> well, it, was, it was Animal Planet, and they're like back and forth on the side. You're just like, an animal, man. I, I know, they, what, right? they make the fucking chimps put on <laughs> Halfway pants? through, I went to start flinging poo in that. Like, just too much. <laughs> animals shouldn't be in cages. <laughs> and the, the most interesting thing for that, so I lived in a box... 10 days, 100 snakes. We started with 50, added five each day, um, including black mambas, forest cobras, Co- rattlesnakes. You put, you put Kobe Bryant in yeah, there with every, you? Every single, two black mambas, actually. Two green mambas, right. two black mambas. Um, and the idea was to show that snakes don't want to attack you. So in this cage, living with snakes, no problem. After about four days, people in Vegas realized what's happening. So every night, drunk people come and then you're like... Yo, do something. Catch a snake. Yo, are you sleeping? I'm like, yeah, I am actually trying to sleep. Because every day we were filming during the day and sleeping at night. So the crew would peace out. And like literally for the last three nights, drunk people kept me up. So three nights of no sleep. And then we had to catch all the snakes in the cage and put them in bags to leave the cage. Because the cage was built on the Vegas Strip outside Caesar's Palace. Right. like Like in full view of the public. So we did that. The last snake I, I picked up, I, basically it was a puffer that held it like that, exhausted, and its fang went into my thumbnail. And I was like, fuck, that's exactly what I didn't want to do, to have a snake bite showing that snakes are friendly. Right, Luckily, right. no venom, got out, was perfect. We raised funds for anti-venom research. We raised so, so your thumbnail acted me. as a buffer. Yeah, exactly. Like it, the, there was venom on my thumbnail and a scratch from the fang. So I was like, hmm, that, that was close. And like, we didn't make a big deal out of it because I didn't want to get all that negative press. <laughs> But so we did that. It, it aired five days later on Animal Plant for two hours, called Venom in Vegas, and got massive like worldwide acclaim because people are like I'm not scared of snakes anymore. And I, to this day, people I'll be in like a bar or something and be like, "You're the guy that lived in the box with snakes, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I've done other things, but yeah, thanks for that." I was in West Hollywood. 
peeing at the urinal. Which the, is equally as dangerous yes. as living in a box with snakes. <laughs> and, the, and the guy walks up to me, he's like, uh, I enjoyed Venom in Vegas. And I'm standing there with my penis in my hand. I'm like, I don't have any snakes with me now. Oh, and he's like, except for oh, one. yes, you do. <laughs> you have a snake. I can catch it. I can catch it with my mouth. <laughs> and I was like, I thought it was funny. I'm like, I don't have any snakes with me now except for one. And he's like, and you walked away. I'm like, that's as funny as I get. And like, especially your best line. Yeah, right. Were you and trying to were you trying to conquer your homophobia as you conquer other I got, fears? Or no? I got no homophobia, man. I I, <laughs> I I love the gays, man. I grew up in South Africa with a bunch. Of, my my mom was a, friends with a bunch of prostitutes and gay guys, like people that were ostracized uh -huh. by the community, like back in apartheid South Africa. And I didn't grow up knowing any. Like, because racial stereotypes and racial hate was so big in South Africa, like, you know, I, my dad and my mom just were like, you need to just treat everyone the same. Rich, poor, black, white, you know, gay, lesbian. Yep. Everyone, everyone's the same idiot. It's just, you know, how they present themselves. And that, that stuck with me. So how was that, I mean, growing up in... When did apartheid lift? Uh, in 1995, Mandela came out of prison, prison 92. So I was in high school. And so like, you were in high school. So yeah. you were 16, 17 yeah. when that happened. So you spent most of your entire youth living in that... Apartheid regime, yeah. I mean, and like state-sponsored hate. Until 1993, it was against the law to have a relationship with a black lady or black man if you were if you were white. It was called the Immorality Act. You and did, thrown... did that not incite people to want to do it? Oh, Just absolutely. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Good stuff. They wouldn't make this shit illegal unless it was good. Let me get some of that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and the funny States thing is, so stupid. And and we faced civil war. We were like facing like it was full on civil war. People were like, okay, this is going to descend into anarchy, and and then it didn't. And Nelson Mandela came out and he's like yo like leave the whiteies alone you know let's all be friends and everyone yeah. even the the white racist you know we're like what yeah <laughs> and, weird. And, and yeah exactly and that's why just, the whole country works and now since then it's gone it's gone a little bit african crazy but that's just how africa goes people you know grab money and it's you know it's all sorts of trouble that, that happens but the the actual change from apartheid to to democracy was amazing and and you know israel's you know studied it for trying to use the truth and reconciliation commission where they said if you tell the truth and tell us everything you did, you won't have any charges laid against you. But if you withhold anything and we find out what happened, then we will charge you. So you, mm -hmm. it's full on truth. Like you come out, you tell all your secrets, you don't go to jail. And that's how South Africa got all, over all their problems. So who, who, is, who was given that? The politicians were given that? Everyone. That call it as everybody. long as it was politically motivated, it was fine. Murder, rape, any of that. As long as you came out and you and you had to go and, and they would call hearings Whoa. and your victims would be there and everyone. And the craziest footage I remember and like it changed me as a person was a guy who blew up a, a whole bunch of people and the mom of one of the guys that was blown up was there hugging this guy who was the bomber and forgiving him. And it was black and white. Multiple times this happened, but like black and white on both sides of the coin. Black victims, white victims, black, you know perpetrators white perpetrators but each time you know you have these people crying and hugging and emotion how and much like, ecstasy did they have to put in the water supply to make <laughs> right? that plan work and the, that's the thing is like south africans you know both sides of, of the race divide black and white are passionate and physical people you know they yeah. they civil war is fun you know and that's that's what everyone was thinking is like they're going to civil war there's no way to stop it and everyone hugged and made up and, and that was it so <laughs> crazy <laughs> right man, crazy um and it's and it's Things are pretty good there now? Way better. Um, the only thing that's gone down is that the, the current president is allegedly corrupt. So he's building like a 250 million rand, which is like a $100 million house 
for himself with like a bunker and a hospital and all that while people are still starving. So like that's yeah. where the divide comes. But that's African countries for you. You know, that's yeah. often what happens no matter what the leader is. You know, it's just cronyism. And I guess it happens in America too to a certain extent. Yeah, as much as they can get away with it. I mean, yeah. it's just they can maybe get away with a little more yeah. um, in Africa. So, so what do you think? And I've been to Africa. I spent some time in Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania. Um, man, it's a, it's a big big task to try and get get a lot of those things kind of straightened out and helped i mean what, what's your view to, what's your view on that all the aid that comes in it seems like it's not being used in the right way because what i experienced there is that a lot of the best and brightest uh people in africa and there's plenty a lot of people going to school really smart very articulate they weren't trying to start businesses they weren't trying to do anything in politics what they were really doing is writing the best grants you know and just creating programs to siphon more money in and it seemed like that that's like the easiest way to get money and get ahead in Africa is to go after the grant money rather than kind of try and build something. And obviously that's not everybody, but yeah. that seemed to be one of the issues. So what do you think, you know, what do you think the world should kind of pay attention to for Africa, being an African yourself? Um, one of the big things that, that people don't realize is America, you know, funded and financed a lot of what happened in Africa. And then when that financing ran out, people were like, okay, well, then Africans will just take care of themselves. And that certainly didn't happen. And now there's a lot of finance coming from Chinese. And the way it works, and this comes back to endangered wildlife and all that, the way it works is a, a lot of like um, Chinese companies and Chinese nationals that will go to a country and say, okay, well, you don't have any hospitals, schools, or roads. We'll build that, but we want your mineral rights. Or you build that, we want your fishing rights. And the locals are like, well, we don't have anything. So yeah, of course, you know, go for it. Yeah, we don't yeah, care yeah. what's in the ocean. We don't <laughs> right. even have boats, you know? Right. And so like Mozambique is a good example. We go and you sit on the coast of Mozambique and you can count 50 longliners and they're catching dolphins, sharks, turtles, all the fish. Catching dolphins. Everything. Like, every, everything. Yeah, exactly. Fuck you, dolphin. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like basically taking everything out of the ocean. And the Mozambicans don't know anything about it. And by the time that it gets to points of legislation, it's already too late. Um, we were filming a shark episode down there, and they, they fin sharks. So they catch them on a hook, pull them up, cut their fins off, throw them back in the ocean. For They're, fin soup or exactly, whatever. Right? Yeah, which it's no nutritional contents. It's no benefit. It's purely an ego thing. You, you have shark fin soup when you're trying to impress. Well, friends. I guess there's cartilage in there, but you can get that from fucking anywhere, yeah. gelatin of some e sort. Exactly. Yeah. And it's all like, and the, the, more, the bigger the shark, the more expensive the fin, the more rich you are. You know, mm -hmm. like it's total bullshit. So sharks, you know, f section of mature at 16 years, live for maybe 50. We don't really know. And these guys are cutting their fins off just for one meal. So that's And happened. the shark dies. Shark dies. And it doesn't die right away either. Like sometimes they'll survive for a week because they can't swim. So they're like basically now sea slugs laying on the bottom of the ocean starving to death. And like that, and we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of sharks per ship. Now we're talking about like worldwide 450 million sharks a year. Like that's, that's huge. That's why shark numbers are going down. So I said to the Mozambicans, I was like, well, why don't you just go out there and chase them away? Like, oh, once we went out there, we shot rounds at them to chase them away. And they like blank rounds and they pulled out real AKs and started shooting at us. And they're like, fuck that. Yeah, <laughs> Sharks yeah, aren't yeah, worth yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, that's, that's what's happening with Africa. You know, a lot of people are investing money, taking away all the stuff that we think is important, the environment, the animals, the minerals, things that we need, like depleting them and moving on. And you're going to have African countries that are like just ridden hard and put away wet because they were just neglected by, by Western society. That being said, Africa doesn't need money. It needs people. Yeah. Giving an African money doesn't do anything else than give them you know, food for a day or a week or whatever. Teaching Africans skills and going back to Africa is a huge, big thing for me. And you know, taking people back there and making them happy and seeing how important Africa is in, to, to the whole world. Because it's not just 
full of Africans. Like there are inventors and and pioneers and you know development going on there that that with a little bit of money would be huge. Right. All right. So let me back up real quick for people who don't understand. Well, some people might be like, "Oh man, fuck the sharks." Anyway, he's always trying to fuck with us. You know. So the problem with killing all these sharks is, as I understand it, and correct me. Obviously, you're an expert in the area. You kill the sharks. The sharks eating some of the larger predatory fish. Mm-hmm. You know. And so um, the larger predatory fish have no predators to keep them in check. Mm-hmm. So because there's so many more of those other fish, like tunas and other things like that, then they start eating all the, the little fish, mm-hmm. right? So the whole food chain gets jacked all the way from the top by removing the apex predator from the chain. Is that, is uh, that really? That's, that's, that's the, the long and short of it, other than the fact that you know, if you hate sharks and say they serve no purpose, or if you just hate sharks as a person, that's fine. They still serve a purpose. We did some research and we found that um, sharks, even if they aren't eating animals, just the idea of a shark, like the shadow of a shark from the sky, makes other animals breed less because they have that predatory, like they have a, something over them that's bigger and scarier. So they right. still sneak around. Even if it's a nurse shark that doesn't eat fish, just the, the silhouettes of a shark, they'll sneak around and like live in the, in the shadows. As soon as that shark silhouette is gone, then they're like, screw it, I'm the big fish, and they come out. So, so even if it's not actively predating on a fish, just the, the shark in the ecosystem is enough to keep the ecosystem under check. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So then to, to go back, just just wanted to clear that up for people to understand. But then to go back to Africa, <clears throat> um, so many people are like, oh, you know, we got to help Africa. We got to help Africa. I'm like, you know, your cause is noble. Your heart is absolutely in the right place. But how you're going about it is, you know, you got to take a look at that mm-hmm. because just, you know, throwing some money um, toward a kid in Africa, you know, really when you actually track those dollars down, uh, just a fraction is going to that actual kid. Most of it goes to the organization and the commercials that got you to buy it and the executives. And I'm not saying that all organizations are like that, but there's some good kind of watchdog websites that you can check out to kind of see how much money is actually getting there. But then even the money getting there, it's just, it's a resource that's not doing anything. It's not putting that money to work. So if someone wants to get involved and say, you know, fuck, you know, I really want to help out Africa. It's a dire situation. What would you recommend to them? Just your ever, average everyday person. The funny thing, and this is going to sound like a sponsored message because I do eco-tours and that. And the reason I do eco-tours is for this reason. Every seven people that go to Africa gives an African a full-time job for a year. And that trickles down. And the difference is if you give, and I, I have major issues with some of these like you know fund organizations just like sure. you do. Um, and one of the major issues is if you go to Africa and you see someone that needs money, you can give them $5. Mm-hmm. That for me is huge. And then also the, the, the trickle down from the, the tourism is huge. It's massive. That's what stabilizes countries in Africa. You right. know, diamonds and that is it's a destabilizing force. Oil is, you know, look at all the countries that have oil, diamonds, and gold, usually at war. So, the, so that's the big thing. I'd say visit Africa, see for yourself, and you know, if you see someone who needs money, give it to them. Like seriously, right. like that's, that's my, my take home. The other part of that is if you're into animals and you're traveling to a, a reserve or something, going there and empowering the locals to be pro-conservation versus pro-hunting is what saves animals. I worked with Jane Goodall, and that's how she saved those, the, the chimps is basically by saying, okay, they're not bushmeat, but you can also make money from showing like tourists where the chimps are, and that's what saved gorillas and chimps. Literally, that was it. Not guns, not anti-poaching things. It was people going out there and then changing the, the mentality of the locals. The same thing with Africa. If we give them money... I'm not saying them. If we give Africans money, like as governments and that, 
they're just going to want money. If you uh-huh. say, okay, well, here's an industry where you can make way more money right. than anything else, make that safe and you know, renewable, then, you know, then everyone's environment wins, animals win, we win, the Africans win. Yeah, and there's also some successful microloans kind of uh, charities and things that I know you can get involved there. Yeah. Um, going back to the conservation thing, so one of the craziest things I've seen, I've seen you do a lot of crazy things. You send me videos all the time. <laughs> I have to post some of these so, uh, so everybody can see what I'm talking about. But it's this video, and, and you're, you're huge into rhino conservation. Yeah. Uh, that's a major issue. A lot of rhinos are being poached, similar to the shark fin soup. Mm-hmm. They're cutting off their horn. They're making some kind of, what are they doing? Uh, it's supposed to be either aphrodisiac. Um, and Big, big yeah, horn. Yeah, exactly, big horn. Or, big dick. Or the, other, the other big thing is it's supposed to cure fevers. And it's like, really? It's like, fever's the scourge of our time? Like, is that really as bad as, like, you have to kill a prehistoric, essentially prehistoric animal yeah. for a fever? So those are the two things, you know, shark fin soup is, is status, rhino horn is aphrodisiac and fever, and now elephant tusks, I got an email this morning, they just found a container full in Malaysia from Togo, elephant tusks are chopsticks. For a huge, giant sumo age. I mean, how do you... <laughs> well, yeah, so they, they take the elephant tusks, they oh, cut yeah, them they into little blocks of wood, and they <laughs> ship the wood to China, and then they'll make anything out of them. But the right. big thing now is going back to ivory chopsticks. That's the so big... So some kind of stuff, some, like gator shoes. Exactly. Gator and, boots. and I'm like, if elephants were abundant everywhere, that's fine. I'm okay with killing animals to conserve them. I know it's a hugely controversial thing, but you can't, con- you can't save everything. You have to save species. And like right. that's where I get pro that. But now, you know, with, with the... The way the economics are going, Asia's got more money, Africa's got less, supply and demand. Suddenly people who couldn't afford elephant, rhino, and shark now can. The demand's just skyrocketed. The highest amounts of elephant, shark, and, and rhino poaching in the last 25 years has happened this year. So, and, and those numbers are just increasing. increasing. Is, last year, 444 rhinos were killed. This year, over 600. In one day, in one town in South Africa, and this is South Africa. That's like a 33% increase. That, yeah. it, it's, that's unsustainable if that growth keeps going. There's two, not going to be. How many rhinos are left? 20,000 in Africa. Last year, two species went extinct. And both of them, well, one of them was Asian. It was a Vietnamese rhino, which was one of the big demands is. So it's, that's logical. And then the other one was a North African rhino. So, so two species are gone forever. Yeah, Lost and, and no dicks are any bigger, no and, <laughs> and and nobody is getting more pussy because these rhinos are gone, and, and, and that's a fact. And the funny I can verify is, that. Like, I can put the Audit Labs <laughs> stamp of approval on that. And that. the funny thing is, like speaking to you about these projects, it's hard to get corporate sponsorship for them because you know some of the content's pretty heavy. I approached Pfizer and said, "Hey, buy us a four by four for anti conservation, uh, for for anti poaching conservation in Africa. And we'll put Viagra on the side." And they're like, "No," I'm like, "Come on." You make the product that could save this animal. We want yeah, you yeah, to get yeah. the vehicle that will save the animal. I'm like, and you're Pfizer. I'm like, it's not like you don't have money. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's silly. So, so anyway, so this video, he's, Donald, Donald <laughs> sends me this video. And um, it's a you know, pretty emotional video that shows you, you know, you're rolling out with a local team. What country are you in? South Africa. South Africa. Um, so rolling out with a local team and um, you're kind of tracking down some poachers. And you come across a field where rhinos have been... Uh, their horns have been taken off, and they're just left for dead there. Mm-hmm. And it's a really kind of emotional scene for you to kind of roll up on this, and for the viewer as well. Um, you keep following the track and and come up on the actual poachers, and you're you know you're kind of following. It looks you know real guerrilla style. Got your cameras rolling. All of a sudden, shots ring out, wah wah wah, like high velocity rounds coming over. <laughs> you guys hit the deck, and at that point in the video, you're like, oh shit. 
oh shit, this is get this just got real. Yeah. This guy got real as fuck right now. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, oh, we're being shot at again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then, so then, so your dudes drop down, but some of your dudes have AKs. Yeah, yeah. And then these other dudes pop up and they start whap whap whap, you know, sending shots back at the poachers who are shooting at them. And then you roll up and you what? Capped one, killed him. Yeah, the the, the full that, yeah, that's the sizzle. The full story was we went. To, yeah, we killed one guy. And my 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 take home message was that like, do you want a gun? And I said no, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> because if there is a problem down the road, I don't want to even have a weapon because uh, that's sure. Yeah. When we when we rolled up there, we were there for fourteen days. We called the cops. We we're like, hey, we are doing anti poaching stuff. They said to us, don't call us unless there's a body. I was like, oh. And then when we went and found those dead rhinos, I've been working in, in Africa with animals for 34 years, you know, like my yeah. entire life. And I've never seen a dead rhino. And then we go, they're lying to us. They won't near it, let us near anything because they are law enforcement, but they're also poachers. They're like, no, no, no. We eventually weasel our way to where the dead rhinos are. We film them. Mm-hmm. And then we tracking these guys. We hide the footage on the way out. Those guys try and arrest us. And they say to us, if you go to jail in Nduma, which is northern Zululand, you won't come out the same. Meaning you'll get raped, which is you know, obviously. But the HIV and AIDS prevalence up there is 50%. Mm-hmm. And it's called slow puncture, where they get someone with HIV to rape you. So that's like something you take home. And this guy's standing in the door of the car telling me this. And I'm like, hmm. He's like, are you a film crew? And we said, no. And in our 4x4, four four, we open the back and there's a giant magnet that says film crew with our telephone number. <laughs> like, oh. So after two hours of interrogation, they let us go. The only way we got the footage out, we took the footage out the cameras, put it inside of a base parachute. Also known as your asshole. <laughs> yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> well, that was the thought. I was like, because as we were driving, I'm like, dude, I have a bad feeling. Like, I'm like, this has been too good. Something's going to go down. So, so before this, though, we haven't gotten to the story where you rolled up on these poachers. I mean, this is after, oh, yeah. this is after the poachers. So, so what happened? So they, oh, they they start they see you coming they're like shit yeah and they got they got high velocity rounds meant for poaching yeah. right hard, 30, harder 30 to reload eight, yeah. yeah so so they start shooting at you yeah right and you you get bullets whizzing by you yeah then your dudes pop up return fire yeah. and then you roll up on them and then what happens well, how was that scene because you oh, just see a fraction of okay so, so that whole scene how it played out is it's a shoot to kill policy um those guys had killed those first two rhinos and they killed another two. And that's what they're actually in the full episode. You see them hacking at the rhinos. And that's when one of the guys sees us and shoots at us. It's a sh- shoot to kill policy on the side of law enforcement or property owners. So as soon as poachers see anyone, they just start shooting. So you have a right. If you see a poacher and you're rolling around, you have a right to shoot him with the intent to kill. Oh uh, Yeah, on site. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Seems and, like a good deterrent, but people just aren't using that clause. If they put that shit in Texas, oh, my over, God. Right? There would be no poaching. <laughs> people would be like, I'm going to get me a human. <laughs> right? I'm going to get me a human today. Come on, poach something. Poach. They'd, be, they'd be breeding extra animals and teasing people with them and, like, and genetically modifying extra large horns that glue... That, that glowed in the sky like unicorn <laughs> magic just to pull poachers. Come on, do it. Yeah, do it. Come on. Do it. <laughs> but but it's, nobody's taking that up. In, the the in, thing is, it's the weird, it's once it comes down to economics. So the guy on the ground in Africa doing the poach and often the, the bottom of the pyramid scheme who's making no, or the top of the pyramid scheme, whatever, who's making no money. He's, he's getting literally like $100 for it for a horn that's maybe worth $100,000. So he's the bottom of the scheme. And those are the guys that you're killing, which makes you sad because... They're just yeah, tra- yeah. as trapped up as you are. But once someone starts shooting you, all fucking bets are off. Then I'm yeah, not the sure. UN anymore. Like then you, no, then yeah, yeah. you shoot at me, I shoot at you. That's the rules. So <laughs> that that was that. But in Africa, 
it's got so bad now that they're hiring ex-military guys to kill these rhinos. So they're using helicopters, they're using night vision, they're using veterinarians, so they don't even have to use guns anymore. They use M99, which is what Dexter uses. And they've had cases now where they use M99s, etorphine. They'll dart the rhino, cut the horn off, and the fucking rhino wakes up. And they'll find the rhino two or three days later with half of its face missing. There's one rhino in Johannesburg that's been poached three times. It's got 16 fucking bullets in it. It's a black rhino. It was poached. They cut the horn off. They recovered it. The horn starts growing back again because it's like basically like toenail, but they fucked its whole face up. It was poached again. They shot it again. They cut its horn off again, brought it into like a private reserve, and then they shot it again just for spite. They didn't even try and get it. They just shot it through the fence. And now it's living at the Janusburg Zoo. So these people aren't normal. That's a gangster rhino. That's like, I mean, like, a, that's that's like the Rasputin of rhinos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's fitty. He walks with a limp and everything. <laughs> yeah. He needs a record label. <laughs> <you Gold know>? <laughs> <laughs> well, he lives in Johannesburg. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, that's the kind of people you're dealing with. It used to be a guy in the field with a gun and flip-flops and a machete. Now it's often you know, ex-military guys from different countries in helicopters at night. So it's, it's become a syndicate thing. It's being run like drugs. It's, last year was $400 million in rhino horns alone. It's ridiculous. That's a lot. It's, it's, it's huge. I mean, it's a huge industry. And the, the people who make the least money are the guys on the ground that would make good conservation officers if the industry was right. you know, tourism-based rather than, than killing animals-based. So go visit some rhinos go visit anywhere in the world and do things that basically make people you know want to conserve the, the environment and animals right. right visiting zoos is cool but if you can go to like a full-on reserve that's way better you often see less animals but it's better for the animals you know yeah yeah so to go back all right, we, i don't think we quite finished this story so you're getting you're getting threatened with being raped Raped, Slow yeah. punctured in the bunghole, yeah. raped with AIDS. <laughs> with AIDS, AIDS rape, as, yeah. as, as a little ad addition to the yeah. pleasures that you're about to receive in jail. You get threatened with that, and they're going through. What's going through your head right now? I mean, you conquer a lot of fears, and, and you know, you've pretty much mastered But at that point, you've got to be a little bit, oh, shit. The, the, the things that scare me are um, people in authority position drunk on power or just drunk. Yeah. Like those are the two things. In Africa, oftentimes guys will pull you over and they have guns and they're drunk. And you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and this is in the really remote places. And when we got pulled over, these guys are drunk and power. Where they're like, you know, mm, like we could say they were fighting back or whatever. My cameraman was like, he's an South African guy. He's like, let's just tell them we're making a documentary. I'm like, no. I'm like, these guys are the enemy. The guys we can tell we're making a documentary are their bosses, but they are you know, far away. So like, right. let's just lie till now. And my other friend was a base jumping friend he was just with and he hid the footage in the base base parachute. So like mm -hmm. when they searched our vehicle multiple times, they got, grabbed the parachute and they were going to open it. I was like, don't do that. There's a spring inside. It'll hit you in the face. And the lady was like, oh, okay. And she put it down. That's how we fucking got the footage out. That's the only reason we have any of that footage. Then we spoke to, once we got away, we drove away, got back to, to, to Shishlui where we were staying, called the head and told him what happened. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, we're investigating. Two days later, we found two of those guys were the poachers. The guys who had, they had like M16s in our face, right, like right, pointing right, at us, right. telling us to get in and out of the car and searching our shit. And you guys probably just capped their buddy. Well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, you don't know who's involved or who not, who's not. The private security firm we work with has a document with all the poachers, their addresses, the syndicates and all that, but you can't give it to the cops because the cops are involved. Man. <laughs> so the only, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a cute, and there's a book out now called Killing for Profit by a friend of mine called Julian Rodemey. It goes up all the way into the embassies. There's a Vietnamese diplomat that was bust twice smuggling rhino horn. He invoked diplomatic immunity both times. 
And we're talking a lot of rhino. Yeah, and, we're not and, talking like one in a suitcase. No, yeah, no. we're and, talking. And like, you talking about you talking about a hundred thousand dollars? It's more more valuable than gold. It's a hundred thousand dollars for one horn that doesn't even weigh a pound. So the, these guys are making massive money, and he's a diplomat, so he's like, you can't do anything. Goes back That's to South Africa. That's a lot Africa. more valuable than gold. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's ridiculous. And like he he got bust. Diplomatic community carried on working, got bust again, and invoked it again, and then just left South Africa and is work, working somewhere else now. So that's that's the that's the problem. Well, <clears throat> you're raising awareness, you're bringing it out there. Uh, we uh, we'll post this video after the podcast, well, and uh, everybody out there, you know, take a look and share it, get yeah. the word out. And you're going with an unlikely character out there to, to for the cause. You're going out there with Kesha here. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, the, that's the interesting thing about TV is is uh, the, the Kesha thing. We were trying to get the show going about conservation, yeah. and it seems like all the networks now don't want to show real things like anymore like they don't want to do any anti-poaching they don't want to do animal shows they don't want to do anything with real guts because it's too much for people to handle so like a lot of the stuff stuff that we're doing now we're releasing independently so we don't have to water it down to become this generic mass tv model so like the last show i did we went to people's houses to have animals that shouldn't have them try and take them away it was with clint eastwood's daughter allison eastwood Mm -hmm. called animal intervention except the animals are lions tigers and bears and all the animals are in the states. So like upstate Pennsylvania, tiger, a lady here it's in Texas. Be in Texas. Yeah. yeah, Texas, a lady living in an RV with four monkeys. Like we try to help her and all that. And those, they, are, those are her lovers. How exactly. dare you take those away? And, and her husband. <laughs> <laughs> and like that show, they don't want to renew because it's too real. Like people don't like seeing real stuff. So like the poaching thing, this documentary. Well, on the been, internet they do. Just it, maybe the networks don't have the stomach for it. That's you know? the thing. And like this poaching documentary, I offered to give to a bunch of TV channels like National Geographic and Discovery and all that. And they're like, it won't rate. It's too real. It's like the Cove. It's like, it's too much of real stuff. So this has literally been up often. Usually you make a lot of money to make TV. I said to them, you can have it. And they said, no. That's, yeah. that's well, mainstream you know, media. That's the way it's going, though. I mean, uh, the, the radio stations are giving away to podcasts, and the TV shows are going to give away to the webisodes and webcasts. Yeah. I mean, it's just they can't keep control on this forever. Yeah. You know? But in the meantime, working within the system, you're going to bring a pop star out there, yeah. water it down a little bit. Hopefully Kesha won't get shot at. Exactly. Or, you know, depending on how much you like Kesha. We yeah. obviously don't want her to have <laughs> problems, but it could be kind of cool to see her get shot at. Yeah. You know, and just to yeah. see a little, whoa, holy shit, this is real now. This is yeah. real, yeah. Um, all right, all right, and then and then you know the the bringing it all back full circle to the reason I'm yeah is using interesting things to get people excited about this. We're gonna do a, a legal base jump in Vegas um, on I think the 10th of January next next. Uh, sorry, the the 10th of January uh, we're gonna do a legal base jump at CES, and while we are yeah, doing doing a bunch of jumps for you to make videos that we're like, hey, look at all this crazy shit we're doing, woo! And then people watch the video at the end, you're like, by the way, <laughs> this is because of rhinos. And even if one out of 10 people take notice, it's still more than if you're just trying to get them with a, a Sarah McLaughlin song or, or something like that. Right, yeah. You could jump naked, too, <laughs> yeah. and that would help. You know, I'd get a girl to jump naked. It's way more... <laughs> even though that sounds good until you actually see it, the boobs never look as good in free fall. Like, they just become scrambled. Like, not scrambled, they just become like... Just like very, like, if they're yeah. small, they look good. If they're big, then it's just like all over the place. And it's yeah, just going, just going to the armpits. <laughs> In the face. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so, so let's talk about this base jumping a little bit. Another yeah. one of the crazy videos that I've seen. And um, you're, you're jumping, I think it's Iger. And mm-hmm. you've you're got a, it's the, which is a big cliff. You're base jumping off this big cliff, following a flight path. And um, as you're going, you see this outcropping of rocks coming up. <laughs> and as you're watching, you're like, Oh shit! 
oh shit, Donald's gonna hit this thing, right? And you pass it, and it's just like not far away. No, it's a couple that. feet, yeah. <laughs> and then I turned left and flew down the ridge. Like that was yeah, like yeah. flying over things is easy because you don't really burn altitude. As soon as you turn, you're burning so much altitude because you don't have an engine. Right. That like that was what I was trying to time perfectly. Is that I turned and turned over the ridge. So you started and turning it. a little bit too soon. No, no, it was actually perfect that what I did. If I turned perfect, too soon, yeah, I would have hit it. <laughs> but it was it was it was it was perfect because I just missed it <laughs> yeah. by a foot. Exactly. <laughs> you, you know, you always, That's like, the crazy <laughs> mentality of a base jumper, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. You just heard it there. I was saying, oh, so you did it a little early because you cut it so close. But he was saying, no, no, that was perfect. Yeah, a little early, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> and the, the interesting story behind that jump is the Iger, high Iger that we jumped, it was jumped once before in a documentary with Dean Potter. And it took him like five years to find the exit point and all this stuff. And my friend Ian Flanders, who's a phenomenal climber, he's climbed El Cap, he's climbed Half Dome, he's amazing wingsuit and base jumper, he broke both his legs in March. We tried to recover him using on its stuff, and you know we, he, he's been he's been militantly working out in that. Mm-hmm. Four months later, after two broken legs, you got us the helicopter. <laughs> we got onto the Iger and we jumped a seven thousand foot wingsuit jump. And like mm-hmm. to see a person that I picked up four months before in a wheelchair at the airport that had to wait another week for surgery on his legs to watch him wingsuit off of a mountain, I almost started crying. Yeah. Except for the fact that I was so fucking shit scared because we were on a <laughs> 7,500 foot cliff. And the wind was blowing so hard that when we jumped off, we got blown off. Like it was a 30 knot wind from the back. So we got blown off the mountain. So I went head low, kind of like along the face and then, then flew along the ridge and then down the glacier. Yeah. Which is... <laughs> so this video, this video is going to be out soon too, Very right? Soon, we're yeah. just doing a final edit on it, but that's going to be crazy to kind of take a look at. Now we were talking yesterday... Um, for people who don't know much about wingsuiting, you think it's like maybe a little bit of control, but it's a, a lot of control that you have. And you were talking about there's some people now who are able to fly up mm-hmm. with a wingsuit. And, and this is really getting into bird type of shit yep. at this point, you know, able to fly up like a hand glider of some sort, mm-hmm. you know, and, and also slow their speed down. Talk about that and what, what the ultimate goal of this crazy endeavor is um well the the the, the wingsuiting like obviously everyone's seen vimeo everyone thinks it's like wow that's like the best and the best in the world and, and it is but wingsuiting is becoming so mass appeal that someone within three months can learn to wingsuit safely out of a plane and if they want to progress they can go on and part of it is people are developing wingsuits that are better technology is improving we understand more parachutes are getting smaller so you got less of a drag so the bigger the wingsuits get, the slower you can fly. So like, you know, bigger mm-hmm. canopies fly slower. So the wingsuits are getting so big now that last year a friend of mine got to five miles an hour forward and then zero miles an hour down. So he was just going forward at five miles an hour. So if you've ever fallen off a bicycle or a skateboard at five miles an hour, you know it's not such a big deal. No. Where he was trying to land, there was another cliff, which is his safety. So he could stall out and then fly off the cliff and keep flying. So you can basically see what his GPS was doing. He, he accomplished that last year, and this year, unfortunately, he died. Not doing that, but wingsuiting, you know, proximity flying. And um, there are two or three other guys that are getting to the point now that they're flying so slow that they think they can land without a parachute, which has been the holy grail for a while. A guy did it into boxes, like a stunt. But I think next year in Alaska, there's going to be a bunch of attempts for guys landing wingsuits on the side of snowy mountains where they just fly and match what an alpine skier is doing and just kind of fall out the sky. I match what an alpine skier does when they fuck up and they crash. <laughs> Asses and elbows everywhere, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's it. But now, for me, flying slow is not the key. 
for me, sl- flying precisely is the key, and that often means flying yeah. really, really fast. So, like the wingsuits that we have are like the samurai swords. They don't fly slow. They only fly fast, but they can turn on the dime. So I could hit a tennis ball from a mile away. Like if you give me a, something to hit, I could hit it easily. Like mm-hmm. I could turn around, and, and that's kind of what we're doing and what, what we're filming with you guys. The first time we jumped the Eiger, we did out of the helicopter. The second time we jumped off the mountain. And the first time we jumped, we flew inside of a cloud for 45 seconds. That's what we're actually adding to the video now. And I'm flying next to the cliff face. And you can see the cliff face every now and again flash by. But I'm essentially in a cloud for 45 seconds, total white out. Can't see anything. And the cliff's just going over here. And I knew what the mountain looked like. Mm-hmm. I knew there was a glacier, so I could see the white. So I just stayed in the cliff. I mean, the cloud and flew and flew. And you can see the cliff every now and again, just flash past. How long was your ride? minute and a half. Man, that's that's just the wingsuit jump. So when you jump, it's the craziest thing. And with your adrenaline going that high, that minute and a half has got to see. And I looked, and most base jump wingsuits, you jump, you fly, you open, you're like, oh, fuck, and sensory overload. With this, you, I had time to start fucking around. And I looked between my legs back at the Iger Summit as I was flying away and looked back. I was like, okay, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And as you're flying in, in Switzerland in the Alps, there's a train track that goes down. So depending on how good you are, there's a town called Grunt, and then there's Grunewald. So you jump off the Eiger, you fly down, you proxy fly for a bunch, and you fly down to the train track, and you fly to whatever train you want to catch. So if you're really good, you, you catch the last train. If you suck, then you catch the first one. So there's like four different places you can stop. So you're flying over houses and trains and trees and shit and looking where you're going to land. You feel like a superhero. Yeah. It's absolutely – and when you land, you're like, hmm. What <laughs> <laughs> <Quite> now? <laughs> and that, that was it. And no one has dreams of flying as, I mean, as, as skateboarding as a kid or snowboarding or scuba diving. Everyone has dreams of flying. I mean, that's, yep. it's a very basic human thing. And this is one of the few things that I've done that the hype lives up to the action. Most people are like, oh, it's the greatest thing ever. You go do it. You're like, yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, like parasailing. Yeah, you're like, I was like, oh, my God, really? Just put me down. This yeah, is lame. Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's it. Wingsuiting has never, and it's like, people are like, well, you can die. You're like, well, that's the trade-off. Right. It's the greatest thing ever, but the jeopardy is all death. <laughs> yeah. So how does that, how does that, you know, make you feel? And I guess, well, I guess there's two things I want to get at. One is, you know, that's such an adrenaline dump at that point, you know, and you finish and, and you're on that high. Um, is that the part that gets addicting from it? Is it that actual feeling of getting your senses that alive? I mean, what is it that, that makes people, once they do it, they just want to keep going after it? There, there's new research now that um, shows that the, we are not adrenaline junkies. We're actually born with a dopamine deficiency. Mm-hmm. So we, we walk around, like you ask most extreme people who walk around, like how do you feel on a scale of 1 to 10? And most of them will say a 7, but most of them actually when they get interviewed will, will be a 5. Like mm-hmm. they walk around at a lower like vibration than most people. And then when we do extreme things, the vibrations picked up to like a 7. So like when we do something amazing, we're like, okay, cool, this is a good day. And then we're normal. So right. it's not like we, we, we operate a seven and we hit 11 each time. We actually just, you know, really mellow and then go to that extreme So this is what it takes to get you... Mellow. <laughs> and that's the crazy thing. And that's why it's like <clears throat> such an addictive behavior because you change your life, you change your behavior in life because you're just trying to be on that vibration where everyone else is. You're and just a regular guy looking for happiness. I'm just trying to be normal, and you do man. It just, just, <laughs> I'm just, just trying to be normal. That's I'm all. just hanging out in right. boxes of snakes and right. getting sharks attacked right. and jumping off cliffs right. and imagine. missing them by only a foot. <laughs> I mean, imagine how much just it would suck if you woke up and you're like, wow, to feel normal, I'm going to have to jump off a cliff. Like That's, <laughs> that's what I deal with every day. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is, Base jump, like being on a base exit, right, and having four guys around you that could potentially die, right? You know, anyone could potentially die, but having four guys where the chances of death, death is one in 70, 
because that's the stats, I guess. Is one in seventy you have a chance of dying? Is that a lifetime yeah. of jumping, or is that it, per jump? But, well, it's statistically a ju- base jump has one in seventy chance of dying um, every time he jumps or no, in, in, life? in life. Yeah, okay. and, and, but that's depend on how long they do it. Most base jumpers' careers are seven years. They die, retire, or get injured. Seven years. That's it. So, yeah. like, if you look at it like that too, which is the way I did, is like I've got seven years in the sport, and that's it. Then you do what you need to do, and you and and yeah. at seven years, I'm be like, if I'm alive, I'm like, okay, I'm out. That's okay. That's how many I, years in are you? Three and a half now. All right, so, so halfway. You're halfway there. Yeah, and that's good. Like, it's like progress. a tour of duty in the yeah, military, exactly. <laughs> right? Except completely voluntary. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's like going to war, except everyone's there of their own accord. And just like war, you come back. Some people are missing arms. Some people are dead. You know, you're not angry at anyone. It's just, but the difference is, it's totally voluntary. So what's your, what is your view of death, Donald? I mean, uh, I have, we haven't ever even talked about your spiritual beliefs or any of that. What is your view of death? What happens when you die? What is your take on it? Um, I think it's a dimensional thing, man. Like, I really do think it's a dimensional yeah. thing. And I think base jumpers specifically and wingsuiters are one of the few people, and maybe people in the military, that are so okay with death, it doesn't even bug them. Mm-hmm. And like, that's where that vibrating a different frequency comes in because every single time you jump, you're killing yourself. You are dying until you do something yeah. about it, and like that's sometimes you succeed. <laughs> you know, sometimes you really <laughs> succeed at dying. But like that, that for me is more important than what happens afterwards. Is the fact that I'm okay with it. Like everyone that's running around absolutely petrified of death, they get scared to live. Right. Like that's it. Once once you die, I think it's you know it's energy or light or whatever. But it's it's something that we don't understand and we can't wrap our minds around at this point. So I'm right. like. I'll, you know, once I cross that bridge, I'll get to it. Yeah, kind of like the Native American saying before they go to battle, you know, they always tell themselves today is a good day to die. That's or it. the samurais who, you know, yeah. walked carrying death as their, their greatest ally as part of their Bushido code. You know, I, I think there is something very freeing about that because that is the most pervasive fear for everybody across the board is fear of dying. You want to hang on, hang on to this life. I think for me, fortunately... Um, I didn't have to get there by jumping off crazy shit. It was through you ayahuasca, know, the medicine. Right? Yeah, yeah, ayahuasca and the medicine work. I mean, you actually experience a very physical death where you confront your death head on um, and have to accept it, have to fully accept it before, um, before you can move on. And then you feel reborn. And at that point where you've accepted your death, that's a huge step to mm-hmm. overcome. So uh, for those people who don't want to fling themselves off a cliff, there are, there are other ways to get yeah. there. But for me also, there was another experience I had um, that was a psilocybin experience that where I was able to actually lift out of my body completely. Mm-hmm. Like my breath stopped. I mean, it would be really interesting to see if it actually stopped, but it certainly seemed like to me like I no longer was breathing needed to like my whole body, my heartbeat went down to like the very base minimum. I'm sure there's like a little bit of oxygen trickling back and forth, but no like conscious <sighs> at all. It was just like dead silence in my body. Nothing, no sensation, no feeling. I mean, way beyond isolation tank shit, like absolute zero in my body. And then I could feel my spirit lift off and look down. And I was like, oh shit, like that's not me. That's mm-hmm. just the, that's just the packaging. You know, that's a pair of jeans. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) So at that point, you know, it totally shifted my view of death and to one of if we die, if I died now, uh, it would just be a shame because I didn't quite get to do what I feel like I was meant to do here. You know, I'm just like, damn, that sucks. I have to come back and try again and grow up and, you know, do learn all the things I already (laughs) learned, you know, Um, and it would just be a shame. I'd be kind of bummed out. I'd be bummed out for the people who are alive, they would miss me, you know, and hopefully, 
you know, tell them I, if I die, and I'm sure you probably have some. I just have a fucking big party. Like, That's, don't be sad. Yeah. You know, it's a shame. Like, yeah, it's a bummer. Like, Aubrey didn't get to quite do what he wanted to do. I never got to write the book that I intend to write, yeah. or you know, do have the kids and and do all that. Uh, but there's nothing really scary about it at that point, you know. And I think that's that's something that a lot of people could really benefit from is just having no fear of death. Yeah, and, and it's, it's not it's not a big thing to do. I mean, people say to me, "You're crazy." I'm like, "No." And without being mean to them, I'm like, "You're the one that's crazy. Like, you don't have a passport. You know, you've never traveled. You've never yeah. been scared. When was the last time you were actually scared? Not like, oh God, I'm late for work, but like actually like fucking <laughs> right. shit. Like last year we got shot at in South Africa and Costa Rica. And that, that's like a, that's like bulletproof coffee. It fucking wakes you up. You're like, okay. <laughs> and one of the guys was shooting at our headlamps. And that's like, that's, that really like makes you focus on things. Yeah. And people, I'd say 99% of people aren't going to die the way that they saw it coming. So what the fuck? You know, why, why try and conserve your life so aggressively if you're going to die anyway? It may not be a good way to die my thing is i'm not reckless with my life if there's a choice between doing something that i could potentially die in and something i'm gonna die in i'm definitely not gonna do the thing sure. i'm gonna die you don't have a death wish no and if i do die i'm gonna be like you fucking bummed like it's sad like i didn't have kids didn't do the book and all mm-hmm. that but that's not gonna stop me from doing what i want to do and like that's where pe- like i'm trying to get people to understand 10 years ago we would never ever swim with sharks nowadays you have tours for fucking people down in the bahamas where they go feed sharks out of their hand yeah, the yeah, way yeah. we're progressing as a species, we have kids growing up now that only know what wingsuit base is. They don't go through skydiving. They don't go through all the normal channels. They just go straight for the Holy Grail. So they're starting where the pioneers of the days are now. And they essentially going to a place we can't even imagine, just like skateboarding. You know, you have a 12-year-old kid doing a 900 on Mega Ramp mm-hmm. where Tony Hawk <laughs> didn't try it and Bob Burnquist yeah, only sure. did one. Like, stuff it's, the that's same in, uh, it's the same in MMA now. You've got these little kids. You can look up on YouTube, little kids throwing combinations and yeah. takedowns. And you're like, that kid is five. Well, and that? he is an MMA gangster. That's right. The, the commercial with the two kids being the crap out of each other. And Rory yeah. McDonald's a good example, yeah, too. For he's sure. just, you know, young kid. And he's like, he just picked up where the masters are now. And he just carried on building on it. Yeah. So the way I see wingsuiting and all that stuff, it's going to progress fast. My joke is on Shark Week, you know, we've got to the point now where like the next thing that the American public wants to see is a person get eaten because we've done everything, <laughs> right? We've done everything else. And like the way, the, and, and the way that TV's going now, people are, they want so much that they just, you know, they don't care about human life anymore. You yeah. know, they, they're willing, they're like, oh, if a person dies on TV, man. <laughs> Yeah. One of those things. Yeah, it's TV. <laughs> Certainly plenty of that on the internet. So as we're kind of wrapping this podcast up here, I wanted to ask you, you know, what does what does your fitness kind of regime look like for all this crazy shit Jeez. that you do? I mean, you're going a million miles an hour, but what do you try and focus on to get yourself ready to uh, survive in these death-defying death <laughs> things uh, adventures oftentimes you know the, the downside of what what we do and what i do specifically and like you, i know you you travel a lot too is mm-hmm. traveling beats the fuck out of you and i yeah. know it's not an excuse but you you sick so much of the time that like often supplements and that is the only thing i feel like the immunity stuff that i take from you mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make me never get sick but i think the times i do get sick i feel a lot better a lot sure. quicker sure and I've, i haven't taken antibiotics in two years i know like that's something i'm, I'm trying to avoid after all the stuff that I've been through, monitoring my blood cholesterol levels with my dad dying. You know, like that's mm-hmm. one, one thing that I check on. Try and work on cardio. Try and work on whatever like I'm working on. Like at the moment, my shoulders are really fucked from wingsuiting and base jumping. So working on that. And then the hikes. You know, When you're in Switzerland for three weeks and you, you're hiking alpine environments and all that, that beats the shit out of you quickly. And you realize yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. where you need work. 
traditional big muscles don't really work in wingsuiting because they're so dense. So it's a lot more of like weird body position and that. So type. like yoga? I mean, not what? not yoga. The one thing I'm actually starting to t- take up is bar method, which is that dance stuff because my girlfriend's a, a fitness instructor uh-huh. now. But yeah, lots of just cardio and, and and when my ankle's okay, running in the gym and all that. But not definitely not yoga yet. But but bar yeah. method, which What's is that? it's like ballet. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I swear to God. You should yeah. check it out. It's it's small repetitive movements using uh-huh. a ballet bar, but uh-huh. it's like it focuses on certain parts of the of the body. Sure. So like it, it, with bad shoulders, so more just, skeletal integrity is yeah. what you're is what you're targeting rather exactly. than a high degree of fitness. Or the longest, cardio, yeah, yeah, the longest base jump you'll do is ninety seconds. So it's yeah. very explosive and in that moment. But a lot of it is also it's almost like swimming where you need to be calm and not strong it's all about yeah, finesse yeah, yeah. and being relaxed and that rather than being like manhandling a wingsuit and then the wingsuit just doesn't fly yeah yeah right on man so um you know you've been taking some on products for a yeah. while this podcast is obviously you know made possible in part by on it yeah. um that's onnit.com if you guys aren't aware of that so what are some of the interactions you've had with the uh with the on products um the funniest thing and recent like over the last year it's, it's actually been quite a bit but yeah eight months it's been it's been a while um mm-hmm. the, the last week um i was at a dinner party and uh guys said to me oh, have you heard of this stuff called alpha brain and i had a bottle <laughs> on the table i was actually i'm like well i'm flying to see on it next week He's like, dude, I went to Peru because of the Warrior Poet podcast <laughs> and because of Aubrey Marcus. It changed my life. I did ayahuasca. I was like, I'm texting him right now. <laughs> that, yeah. that kind of stuff is, is the stuff that you could never plan on, but it is amazing. And then the day-to-day things, like with my girlfriend being a, a fitness trainer and that, uh-huh. she, you know, she uses the shroom tech. She uses the immunity. She uses Alpha Brain when she's in trouble. Like that kind of stuff's amazing. And he, seeing it with my girlfriend, she has no... like acts to grind if she's using it, it means it's works right, right for me i think it's like it's changed the way I, I i do certain things like you know in the morning it's like do i need a cup of coffee can i use alpha brain like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff's amazing the interactions obviously adam is a good friend of mine base jumping and i said we're coming to see you he just melted down it's like holy <laughs> and you're like well yeah he's like you know aubrey i'm like yeah, yeah i said you <laughs> and that kind of stuff and then obviously the joe rogan you know as soon as you mention you joe rogan alpha brain that all like comes together so quickly it's like a you know, new generation of people that are aware of the environment, their body, spirituality, yeah. and like you know, not to fuck with shit. You know, not don't let's not totally screw it up for for the next generation, which I think is a good brand, you know, idea to have. That's the that's the main message. You just summed it up. Oh, right really? there. And I think that's a good way to <laughs> to call an end to this fine episode of the Warrior Poet Podcast. Donald, it's been a real pleasure to have you on board. Um, if you guys, uh, once again, always check out uh, check out our friends across the pond at London Real. Uh, .tv. They're putting out a great product as well, getting a bunch of cool guests on there. Um, I heard they got Robert Greene on there too. I really want to uh, listen to that. I've read all of his books except for the new book, Mastery. So have you ever read any no, of Robert no. Greene's stuff? Oh, it's what's killer. He, 48 he, Laws of Power. What's he like? He, like which authors he like? <clears throat> he creates these um, basically psychological and philosophical analyses based around a certain topic. So there's power, war, um, seduction different wow. things and he just removes morality from the from the equation so he says okay you want power this is how you do it we'll let you figure out your own morality yeah. and then he brings in all of these really wow. cool stories from history and all of these examples i don't know who's on his research team but it's yeah. amazing i mean not only is philosophy good but just the the anecdotes that he uses to illustrate it are excellent and he wrote you actually wrote a book with 50 cent called the 50th law which is kind of a it's kind of a lot of his other stuff, but just kind of put in, you know, how it applies to 50s life and, uh, and all that. But he just finished a book called Mastery, which I'm about to, about to get in. But 
Interesting. Lots of good books out there too. People yeah. read read books. Yeah, and the one book that I'd and say if they want to read something about the rhinoceros stuff, there's it's called Killing for Con. Oh no, yeah, it's Killing for Profit. It's like literally the whole syndicate and everything behind the rhino crisis and and how it's like now today actually they announced and it's a national security risk the illegal wildlife trade because terrorists are going and using that money to fund terrorist operations. So it's getting to the point now that caring for rhinos actually is going to impact people. <laughs> All right, so Donald, if people want to get in touch with you, if people want to reach out and follow you a little bit more, how can they? Uh, how can they? The best is seek you out. The best is Twitter at Donald Schultz, D O N A L D S C H U L T Z. Um, we obviously working with you this weekend, doing a bunch of fun jumps, which we'll mm-hmm. only post in that once we leave the states. Yeah, <laughs> right on, right on. And then yeah, that's the most current thing. And, and DonaldSchultz.com. Uh, DonaldSchultz.com is the website. Yeah. Yeah, another one. All right, people, this is it for the Warrior Poet Podcast. Have a great fucking weekend. We'll catch up with you soon. Adios.